John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Something has changed. There has been a shift in the status quo. That change, that shift, began with the command by Christ to Judas, telling him, what you're going to do, do quickly, back in verse 27. And with that command, Jesus separates the lost from the saved, separates those that Christ did not love and love to the end with those that he did. And with that change, that shift, we now get to see firsthand where Jesus places emphasis. What that charge he has is for those that will lead his church, for those that will be members of his church. Because we have forgotten how special the church is, or we just never knew how special it is. We've either forgotten or never knew that Christ died for the church. And even if we were told this truth before, even if we had read this truth, we had never really thought this truth through. And because of this, we have lost our identity as Christians as well. In the first two verses of our text today, that word glory or glorify, that word is used five times. And these Two verses are strangely formulated verses, using that same word five times and using that word in the past, the present, and even the future tense, all with the same meaning at the same time. Now is the Son glorified. God is glorified in Him. God will glorify Him, and God will glorify Him at once. And this is a conundrum that we, the redeemed, must get comfortable living with, because this is the reality of God. He lives in, operates in, the already and the not yet, all at the same time. There is no for tomorrow for God. He is the eternal I am. And for this reason, we should have every confidence about that thing that we call the future. Since he holds us in the palm of his hand, since he has given us life and life more abundantly, since he is the I am God. For this reason, we should not fear anything. COVID-19, economic downturn, the wrath of man, even death. Because he is the master and commander over all those things. And all those things are for our good and his glory for all those that are called according to his purpose. And it is this reason why the saints of old could stand strong as they were being tied to kindling about to be burned alive. This is why those saints of old would forsake the riches of this world and live adventurously with the Lord, trusting in him to care for them, to lead them, to use them as they went out to proclaim the gospel to all nations. This is why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could stand up and proclaim that no matter what happened to them, they would not bow down to that idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made. Saints, 
This is what life with Christ is supposed to be. An adventure, living illogically, living in the hope that we have been given by the one that has purchased us from our eternal damnation and has set us free. Free to live obediently to Him. Free to give extravagantly, knowing that we can never outgive God. Saints, is your life boring? Is your life common? Do you find yourself living for the weekend, for holidays? Do you wonder what is going on in your life and you find your days drudgery and meaningless? If this is so, it is so only for one reason. You are not living the life of a Christian. I know, that sounds judgmental. That sounds harsh and even mean. But it is not mean. It is not meant to be any of those things. It's just truth. Which one of the lives of the apostles would you say was meaningless or boring? Which one of them do you think was trying to find excitement in their lives because they were boring? Their lives were different. There was something different about them, something meaningful to their lives. And we are told what that difference was, what made their lives meaningful in a couple of verses. But first, before we get there, let me admonish you. Saints, take God at His word. Give of yourself and give of the things that you have, not what you think you can afford, not those things that you don't care about, not the time that you have after your entertainment. Remember David when he desired to offer to God a burnt offering because God had blessed him? He went to that man who owned the threshing floor that would one day become the temple of God. He owned, that man owned the wood and the oxen that would be used as a burnt offering to the Lord. And that man offered those things to David, knowing that he was, David was going to offer them to the Lord. But David told him, no, but I would buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to Yahweh my God that cost me nothing. That's 2 Samuel 24, 24. This is why giving out of your comfort really means nothing. You shrug your shoulders at the paltry offering that you have just made. It means nothing to you. You're not affected by it. You can still indulge your flesh as you desire to. You can still live in the lifestyle that you have become accustomed to. And you do. And this is why we must admonish ourselves, our brothers and sisters, or even our children, to heed the word of God. Because the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh and the pride of life are very strong within us. And this may particularly apply to you. If you're longing after a job, a job that will take you away from your covenant community, all because it just makes bank. Or if you're longing or looking for a job that will keep you from your covenant community, but hey, it provides me with all the toys that the world says that I need. 
Well, here Jesus, again, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 36, he says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, turn that around. Listen to what it says when you do that. What loss can there be in giving up all of the world if you gain your soul? And you may be thinking to yourself, this doesn't apply to me. Or, man, here he goes again, trying to get me to change myself, to give more of my money or more of my time. And you're right. Because we've been lied to. We all know this to some degree. We all look at the sugary false gospel that was spoon-fed to us before and understand that it was wrong, that it was not truth. And if that is reality, and since that is reality, should we not continue to question what we were shown, what we were told there? I would keep admonishing you. And I will keep admonishing you to hear the rest of what Jesus had to say to these men. Hear what he has to say to you, because Jesus is the lover of your soul. And remember, knowing that his time had come, he loved those that were his, and he loved them to the end. Since this is true, we can and should live in reckless abandon with and in the Lord. And we should do it for the same reason that we're given in verses 31 and 32 of our text today. For his glory. And what Jesus has said to these men in verse 32, it really didn't make any sense to them. Judas left, and now Jesus is glorified? Just as we have to live in this conundrum of the already and not yet, the same was true for these men. The now that Jesus meant in verse 32 is the same thing as the hour that he said was now upon him back in chapter 12 when the Gentiles came looking for him. And as we know, <clears throat> that hour and even this now are all one and the same, which is the greatest demonstration of the love and the glory of God in all of creation for all time. And that glory, that love, that hour, this now is the cross of Christ. And this truth makes no sense to the world. In fact, it makes no sense in the world. But you get it, don't you? You understand how the betrayal of the Son of Man, the beating, the torture, the crucifixion, and the full wrath of the Father, you understand, comprehend how this is the greatest demonstration of His love, of His glory, right? Well, if you can understand this, then why do you think it's so strange that you're told that if you love your life in this world, that you'll lose it? And if you hate your life in this world, that you'll gain it? And if you can understand the truth of the cross, why do you not also understand that many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Can't you see? The economy of heaven is not the same as the economy of the world. The very thing that God says is his crowning glory is the very thing that the world would call his greatest failure. He was brought low in order that he could be high and lifted up. This understanding these things are not just completely different. 
They are completely opposed to each other. And as we're looking at these verses, let us not neglect the reality of life for the disciples on that night. They must have been having a bad night up to this point. It started pretty good, but then Jesus did what was stupid in the eyes of the world, humiliating. He, be, he stripped down and began washing their feet. And as he began, he came to Peter, and he, that self-designated leader of this group, he tried to stop this madness by calling Jesus out. But it was Jesus who would have the last say in this matter, like all matters, and told Peter that if he didn't allow his master to serve him, then he couldn't have any part in Jesus. And then after the foot washing came the explanation by Jesus concerning serving one another. Oh, okay, got it. But then out of nowhere, Jesus tells them that one of them would betray him. This night was going from completely strange to a nightmare for them. And while they were still reeling from this, in the midst of the confusion, Jesus commands Judas to leave. And as soon as that door shut, bam, out he comes with this, now is the time for him to be glorified thing. And then Jesus then concludes the opening statement regarding the glorification of the Son by setting it in context to his impending departure in verse 33, which says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Again, place yourself in the sandals of these men. When we read or hear this verse read, we know what Jesus is talking about. We know what he means by his hour. We know why the now that he is talking about is not only good news, it is great news. And we know that him going away is the only hope that we or these men have. They didn't have this luxury, which is why he begins this statement with the term little children. And when he told the Pharisees and religious leaders that he was going away, that they couldn't go where he was going, he didn't call them little children. In fact, in chapter 8, verse 21, he told them that they would die in their sin because he was going away. This was not the case for these men, those that Jesus loved and loved to the end. And as much as the hour and this now would have life-altering effects for Jesus, he knew the same held true for his disciples. And for this reason, he wanted to prepare them in advance for his coming departure, for the transition that would soon be happening to them. Saints, I want you to ask yourself, if the now of Christ had life-altering effects on him, if that now and the ramifications of that now would have life-altering effects on these men, his disciples, so much so that Jesus wanted to prepare them for it? What effects did or does the death, burial, and resurrection have on your life? What? Did it clean up your language a bit? Maybe set you free from an addiction? Maybe get you a better job? 
Isn't that just a prosperity gospel dressed up and disguised? Is that not the very false gospel that we rail against? Saints, how did the new heart and new life in Christ affect you? Because you may have had the same job before salvation that you do now. You may have had the same house, the same family, the same friends. What change happened? Because you can't move from the family of Satan, from being an enemy of God, to being given the heart to love and adore God, and be counted as one of his sons, and not have more change happen in your life than just what you do on Sunday morning for an hour or so. And maybe a few minutes every day as you open the Bible. When you open the Bible. Is that really what it means to be a Christian? This kind of talk is challenging to us, to me included, because it goes against everything that is easy, that is comfortable, that is considered normal in this culture. Paul Washer has said that as a Christian, we have one of two jobs. Either go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, or stay and live, work in order to send those that do go. This was the command by Christ in Matthew 28. Which, are these, which of these two jobs are we doing? Are we really doing either of them? And this question leads us straight to the crux of this section of Scripture, to the heart of this sermon. Church, I want you to pay careful attention to the next two verses. Highlight them in your Bible, because they're important. Because this is the cure for the heartache and pain that these little children would soon be feeling. This was being given to them as the salve to soothe the pain of him leaving. This was given as the substance, the substance to fill the void that his departure would make in their lives. This is the bulwark that would, they would need in the coming days when their cornerstone would no longer be with them. And these verses are foundational to who we are in Christ. And they are also part of the reason why what is supposed to be the church is not. Verses 34 and 5. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that Jesus is clear. That what he's about to tell these is his disciples, the ones that he loves and loves to the end, what he is about to say is not a suggestion. There is no wiggle room concerning doing this or not. There are no exclusions given, no ifs, no ands, or no buts. This is a new command. Write this down. Here comes your new marching orders. Do you have your pen and paper ready? Because if you get this one wrong, you will not be part of me. And that command is that you are to love one another. Not just as brothers do or cousins. You were commanded to love one another just as Christ has loved you. Well, how did Christ love these men? 
Well, we in our Christianese will reply that he loved them sacrificially. But what does that mean? Because we need to examine Scripture. We had to actually think this thing through. Now really, this command is not a new command. What Jesus is highlighting here in this new command is just a summation of Mark 22, verses 37 through 40, which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He wasn't renovating that old first commandment. He wasn't supplanting that old commandment with a new improved one. He was just illuminating it. Showing us how that it was supposed to be accomplished. Because of his now. Because of his hour. Because he was going to create something that had, ever, had never been experienced before in all creation. His body here on earth, the temple of the living God, the house in which he would place his spirit, the church was about to be born. Is that it? What a letdown. I was expecting, I don't know, something more. Something better, maybe something more dynamic, earth-shattering, world-changing. And any of you who have grown up in what is called the church probably would be surprised to know that the picture that you have of what the church is, that thing that you think about in your mind when you think church, that's the same thing that those that have not grown up in the church think and it's not pretty. The church as we know it is not a place of holiness, of reverence to the word of God. It's not a place where true love and compassion are experienced. It's a place of games, of separating families, of relieving parents for an hour or so from having to deal with or babysit their children. It's a place where you go to be seen, where you put up with people, but behind their backs you gossip about them. Well, maybe not outrightly, but you do it by praying for them. It's a place of bigotry between ethnicities, between people. It's a place where those that are different are shunned, where those that are not easy to get along with are ostracized. It's a place of second-rate entertainment. It's a place where you send your kids for a couple of weeks during the summer to get them out of your hair. It's a place where Bibles are not required or even needed where you're not challenged in your flesh, and where you're not really either satisfied in your flesh either. But you go there to do the church thing at least a couple of times a month. Is that pretty close to what you picture in your mind when you think of church? Well, believe it or not, that's what those outside of the church think of it as well. And is it any wonder that the church is mocked and ridiculed and so easily deemed non-essential? So much so that when a Barna group, group, the Barna group, took a poll of professing Christians and asked them what helped them grow in their faith, people offered a variety of answers. Prayer, family, friends, reading the Bible, having children. But church? It didn't even crack the top ten list. 
And although church involvement was once a cornerstone of American life, U.S. adults, remember, these are professing Christians today. They are evenly divided on the importance of attending church. Half, 49%, say it's somewhat or very important. The other 51% say it's not important or not too important at all. But that's not me, you counter. I am a member of this church, of a church. That's fantastic. But have you ever really considered what it was that Jesus commanded us to do in these verses? Here's that command once again, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Well, what was the meaning behind this command? Was he talking in general terms about other Christians, our love for believers around the world? Well, we can determine this from his explanation of how they were to love one another, just as he loved them. Now, there is an aspect of, the, of this love that we are to have for his church that, doesn't, that does apply excuse me, to the universal church, to those who are not members of this body, to those who do not live in our area or in our nation, or even those that don't live in our own time period. Yes, we are to love them because they are our brothers and sisters. But the command to love by Jesus to these men was directed to them at a specific group of people, one another, each other. Those eleven, they and all that would be in the upper room on that day of Pentecost, and they were to love each other. Their specific church, they were to esteem them above, above all others. They were to treat them like Christ treated each of them. Is that your understanding of the church, of this church, the one that you have covenanted with? Do you see these people who are your covenant body as more important than all that are outside of it? Do you love them just as Christ has loved you? Well, how did Jesus love these men? How was that practically fleshed out? Again, we're all going to agree that the greatest demonstration of the love of Christ for those that he loved happened on the cross. But that hasn't taken place yet. And the command that he has given these men centers on the demonstrated performance that he has made up to this point. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. Look around at the people sitting here, those that you have covenanted with. Think about them specifically. Do you care for these people more than you care for any that are outside of this body? More than your own family? Your children who are not part of this body? Oh, man, did I just cross the line there. I just offended a wide swath of you. How dare I even think to say that you are to love these people who you barely know more than you, than you love your own children. That you are to esteem them more, care more about their provision, their protection, desire to get to know them more, hang out with them more. 
I've just exposed a golden calf that the American culture has provided in place of the real and true God. Do you see how easily it is to be fooled by our flesh? To be blind to the command of God all the while thinking that you're being obedient? How many of you think that you're obligated to put yourself into debt and not give to this your local body because your children need or are entitled to ease, to comfort, and maybe even a college education? How many of you will, chip, will choose to skip coming to be with your covenant community to instead go and hang out with those that are not of your covenant community? How many of you will proudly post Joshua 24, 15, As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. And then allow your children or your friends to do things in your house that are an abomination to God, like watching or listening to things that not only do not glorify God, but just openly mock Him. And which one of us would think that it's okay to have a stranger or our neighbor come into our house and turn on the TV and watch porn? Which one of us would allow our neighbor or a friend to bring a prostitute into a spare bedroom in our house? Which one of us would allow a neighbor or some stranger to come walking into our living room and do drugs? Which one of us here will allow sin, outright sin, to happen under our roofs because we do not want to offend our grown children? our family, or friends. And you'll counter in your own mind, doesn't Scripture say that a man who does not care for his family is worse than an infidel? Yes, it does. But didn't Jesus not address this thinking in his own time with his own biological family? Mark chapter 3. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, my mother. And did Jesus not say in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple? Again, did you hear those imperatives? Cannot. Not might not. Or could not. Cannot. But you'll counter. My children are saved. They are doing the will of God. Great. But if they're not part of this covenant community, are they part of any covenant community? Have you admonished them to pour into that community? To esteem those people of that body that God predestined that they be a member of highly? I'm not telling you to abandon your biological family. What I'm trying to get you to see is how off base we have become toward the only institution that God has ordained on this planet, His church. 
And how did these men, the ones that were sitting there in an upper room on that night, how did they understand this command from Christ? What did they think that it meant, that he meant, when he told them that they had to love one another as he had loved them? And that their love one to another would be a testimony to the world that they were his disciples. Well, lucky for us, we have been given examples of how they understood this command, what Jesus meant by it. We have the book of Acts. And how many of us here have lamented over the fact that the church today looks nothing like it did in the book of Acts? And how many of us have also been told that those actions of those believers are not normative? It was just good for them because the church was new, because there were just so few of them. But did Christ say that? Is that from Scripture? Or were we told that by men who looked around within themselves and around at those, um, at those around them, and they didn't see this as the norm? And so that's what they say? And at the same time, how many of us long to see the miracles of the early church, long to see that revival, that great awakening happen within our own midst, Long to hear throngs of people cry out, Brothers, what shall we do as we are told of in Acts 2? To which Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise belongs to you and your children and all who are far off, to all whom the Lord God will call to himself. Those are verses 38 and 39 of Acts 2. And unfortunately, if we know those verses, we fail to think about the very next thing that Peter admonishes these who just came to the Lord in verse 40. He tells them, he urged them, be saved from this corrupt generation. Is this not the very thing that I've been admonishing you to be, to do? Isn't this part of the understanding of salvation that we talk about, being saved from and to something? What is it that we are saved from and to? We are saved ultimately from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins against Him. And we are saved to Him. The being part, or that part being saved to Him part, that part is part and parcel with what Peter just admonished these new believers with, to be saved from this corrupt generation. The one that places all priority on self, on wealth, on possessions, on having their best life now. Being saved to him, practically, here in this realm, means that we are saved to his church. Again, in this freedom above all else, self-indulging and self-gratifying generation, this thinking is unheard of. But any who have marveled at the miracle of Pentecost in the early church know how that church was described, how it is spoken of right after that verse that we overlooked. In verse 41, we're told, those who embraced his message were baptized, 
and about 3,000 were added to the believers that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And who here does not love verse 43? A sense of awe came over everyone, and the apostles performed many wonders and signs. When we read this, we think to ourselves, this is when the church was the church. And we think or ask ourselves, why is the church no longer like this? Or, I wish the church was like this now. And we may say those things. We may tell each other that we desire this to be the reality in our day, in our life, in our church. But then we go right back to that does not apply or is not normative explanation that we comfort ourselves with because we are not willing to love one another as Christ loved us. But listen to how these men, those in that upper room, understood that command by their Lord how they practically applied it in their lives, what it was that caused a sense of awe to come over everyone. In verses 44 and 47 of Acts 2, we're told, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they shared with anyone who was in need. With one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts and to break bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And this was not an isolated incident. This is not the only time that we are told that this was the common for this body. This was normal life of those men the ones that heard and heeded the command by Jesus to them on that night. Because two chapters later, after Peter was, being, was detained for preaching Christ, after being released and praising God for the privilege to suffer for Christ, and proclaiming that the suffering of Christ was the will and predestined plan of God in Acts chapter 4, the church, that church is described once again for us, beginning in verse 32. It says, the multitude of believers was one in heart and soul. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they owned. Does this explanation of that church not define, reflect the command by Jesus to his church to love one another as he has loved them, and that by their love one for another that the world would know that they were his disciples? And I'm not talking about communism here, or even socialism, because both of those things are bastardizations of the reality of what the church is supposed to be. But listen to how that church was described in the next four verses. Beginning in verse 33, And with great power the apostles continued to give their testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. There was no needy one among them, because those who owned lands or houses would sell their property and bring their proceeds from the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet for distribution to anyone as he had need. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, meaning the son of encouragement, he sold a field that he owned 
and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. In socialism, in communism, the government forces that all be equal. But not really equal. Because those who are in that ruling class and those systems are not equal with everybody. But these people, they weren't forced to give. They weren't forced to love each other as Christ loved them. They did it out of obedience. And did you notice how those things were distributed? First, they were brought to the church, and then the church distributed them. Again, this is a front to our sense of self, to our independent way of thinking. We get to decide. We are in charge. I will do it my way, Lord, thank you very much. But we must allow Scripture to penetrate every aspect of our lives. We cannot worship golden calves. We cannot compartmentalize our lives and be obedient to the command of God. We must look at this command, this single new command that Jesus gave these men and us. And then alongside of that, we must look at our lives, our priorities, where our love and focus is at, and match up that command up next to how we esteem this, his church. Let me ask you this. What would be the outcome if we did begin to esteem the church, each other? Those within our, member, our covenant community in this way. We will be seen as those who truly love each other as Christ loved us. And is that not the command that Jesus gave us? If we did that, we would then demonstrate to our co-workers, to our so-called friends, even our blood relatives, how important, how different, how other this thing, the love of Christ for his own, his church is the world. Your co-worker, your boss, your friend, your family would all condemn you and offer as evidence that you are different than they are your love and devotion to the church. Is this not the evidence that Jesus tells these men that will be produced against them to prove that they are his? And how are we in, how are in, the, how are we in the world supposed to be ministers of reconciliation when the fruit of our lives looks just like the rest of the world? Saints, it's because we have failed to heed the command of Jesus that the church, his church, his bride is seen with such disdain, even by those who claim to be saved. We have been taught to be consumers instead of saints. We have been taught to be individuals instead of a part of a body. We have been taught that we get to decide who is in our family and what family we will esteem higher than the other. We have been taught to ignore this new command that Christ gave us. And we think that it is unloving to be challenged in such a way. We think that this is not the loving thing to do, to be called out like this. And we're wrong. Once again, dear saints, Christ knows us. 
He knows the golden calves that we have in our life. And he knows what it is best for you. And as evidence of the love that he has for you, he demonstrated that love for your brother, who is just like you, Simon Peter. Once again, this self-designated leader of these men pipes up to question Jesus in verses 36 and 37. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? I'll lay, I'll lay down my life for you. Now these things that have been presented here today, they may be challenging to you. You may feel very personally attacked by them. But before you shut your mind and your heart to the truths that are found in these verses because you feel that they're unloving and this can't be the right understanding of them, let me once again summarize the night that these men the men that Jesus handpicked as his church. Let's look at how the love that he had for them was fleshed out. First, he invites them all to a feast. He provides once again for their natural needs and showers his love on them through communion with them. Then he demonstrates what he will be commanding them to do by humbling himself in service to them. And in love, he rebukes Peter, because of his sin of pride. And he rebukes him publicly. And this isn't the first time that he, Jesus, has attempted to show Peter his pride on this night. The first was in the seating arrangement around the table, when he sat Peter in the lowest of places. Picture yourself in this group. Think about how uncomfortable it must have been to witness all this happening. Because we're told in Luke 22, concerning this night, that the humbling process of Peter began even before the dinner started, when Jesus sent him and John to secure this upper room for the evening. And in his gospel, Luke tells us that after Jesus told them that one of them would betray him, after Jesus tells them that one of them would betray him, and after Jesus or Judas left, that there arose an argument between these men about who was the greatest among them. And it was after Jesus intervenes and tells those that were arguing about who would be the greatest, that the greatest was the one that was their servant. And following directly on the heels of that statement, we hear him telling Peter publicly, out loud, for all to hear, beginning in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, all, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Verses 31 and 32. And we're told in the Gospel of Luke, it's on the heels of that revelation by Jesus to Peter that he, Peter, tells Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go, to, um, go with you both to prison and to death. And then, once again, we are told that Jesus demonstrates his love for Peter and his church. Because Jesus answered, Will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I want to talk 
a bit about why Jesus would address Peter publicly in, in the church, in the upper room on that night. Because we are all the same. We all deal with the desire to be number one, especially in our own life, with our own stuff. We don't like opening up, confiding in others. We tell each other that we're just a private person. We don't like revealing need, sin, or pain in our life. This, too, is one reason why the church is non-essential. And the first part of verse 38 of John 13 is very important. The thing that Jesus asked Peter, will you lay your life down for me? Jesus knew the arrogance in the heart of Peter. He knew that Peter saw himself as being on the same plane as Jesus, which is why he would ask that question. And did Peter really believe that he could lay his life down for Jesus? Well, the reality is he probably saw himself as a man's man, a man of action, a man who was to be followed, envied. I need to do something. But Jesus knew that the pride that Peter had the pride of self was no different than placing himself on the throne that only belonged to Christ. And he, Jesus, knew that in order for Peter to ever really understand that the love that he, Jesus, had for that man and for his church, that pride was going to have to die. And church, this is a demonstration of the love that Jesus had for this man, the one that he loved and loved to the end. And since this is a demonstration of how he loved his church, by not allowing secret sin, by not excusing pride, arrogance, and selfishness within his church, by exposing to Peter and all those the danger of thinking that he, Peter, could decide to submit or not, to love as Christ did or not, can we not also see that it is the love of God to challenge us in our thinking concerning his church. Christ has given us a new command, which is really just a summation of the old command. The old command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he has shown us that we are to do this by loving each other. Here, within our covenant community, as Christ has loved us, church, if it is your desire to glorify God, to make much of Him and truly know Him, then esteem His church of the greatest value in your life. Is not the name of Christ of greater importance than the last name that you carry and desire to pass on? Is not being a son of God of more importance than anything and anyone else? Since this is truth, we must esteem his church as he did. And yes, he has loved you and loved you to the end, as we're told in verse 1 of this chapter. But he died for the church, Acts 20, verse 28, which you are a member of. The church, the local church, the one that you belong to, that one which is the local physical manifestation of Christ to the world around you, 
It is the one that you are an arm of, a leg of, an eye of. And for this reason, you must love it, cherish it, nurture it, just as you do your own physical body. I mean, you may care for others, for children. You may care for your parents, for widows and orphans. But there is no one that you spend more time thinking about caring for, nurturing, covering, beautifying than your own body, yourself. Think about that truth and then place it alongside of your desire to know God and allow that truth to reflect on the body that you have been given the privilege of being part of. Love that body as you do your own because your body is dying, but this body is his body. It is a worldly manifestation of the one that loves you and that you love. And it's when we esteem the local body and obey the command of God in loving each other as he has loved us, that the world will see, will begin to understand that we are of him. It is then that they, all those around, will wonder at this peculiar people that have been called, that have been ransomed, that have been bought with such a great price. It is then that the world will be awestruck at this peculiar thing that Christ created, his church. When we begin to esteem his church more than anything else in our lives, it is then that the world will begin to recognize the importance and the majesty of his church. And it is then that the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Let's pray.